Can I know God personally? That's question number seven in our seven-week series, and we come to the conclusion in that series today. And now, God, we ask one more time your blessing on your word, your servant as he preaches, your people as we hear from you. Open our ears to hear, and then give us hearts to believe and hands and feet to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I trust that this series has been a blessing to you, an insightful blessing to you as we have sought to answer many of the questions that we've all had at one point in our lives, in our hearts. If you've missed a message, you can go on to our website, ubcreal.org, and click the sermon button, and you can sign up for a free podcast. You can listen on your favorite uh, device, your favorite app. Uh, you'll notice on our sermon uh, page there, there are probably a dozen different ways that you can listen to the messages that are recorded and uploaded there each week. Today I want to, to explore this all-important question, can I know God personally? Is it possible to have a personal relationship with God? Well, if you are over the age of nine, I think you've become aware of the fact that relationships are hard. Relationships are hard. It is hard to have a fulfilling and mutually beneficial relationship with people. And I think we all know the reason why. Because people are basically selfish. We are selfish to the core. And that's why it's difficult to have relationships with each other. We want to receive more than we are willing to give. We think about satisfying our own desires way more than caring for others with whom we have relationships. And that is why relationships are so hard. And so if it's generally difficult to have good relationships with those we can see and hug, how much more difficult must it be to have a relationship with someone you cannot see and hug? I've been blessed to have a relationship with God for a long time, uh, since I was a child. But I must confess that there have been times when our relationship was rocky. There have been times when I've felt that my relationship with God has been unsatisfying and dry. And I don't think I have to tell you who's at fault during those times. <laughs> How many of you have ever felt distant from God? Yeah. And what do you do usually when you feel like your relationship with God just is not working for you as you think it should? If you're like most people, you try religiosity, right? You start going back to church more often. You may even come to a prayer meeting in the middle of the week. Sometimes... I meet people for the first time and they learn that I'm a pastor and they say something like this, you know, I grew up in the church and I've been away for some time. I think I need to get back into it, they'll say. Some people start to put more money in the offering basket to rekindle their relationship with God. Uh, you try to not to cuss or use his name in vain, uh, hoping to get back under his good graces. Somehow we feel like there is 
this unwritten rule, or maybe folks think there is a rule in the Bible that says if you want to get back into the good graces of God, you've got to get religion. You've got to do something to earn your way back into a relationship with God. Perhaps it's a misunderstanding of the Bible's teaching of sacrificial offerings. Whether it's offerings of animals, fruits, vegetables, wine, or oil. Well, let's not get that twisted. God instituted substitutionary sacrifice to, first of all, teach us, the sinner, that sin is offensive to God. And it is expensive to us and to the thing that is sacrificed. Secondly, God instituted substitutionary sacrifices as a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice to come, namely, Jesus Christ, his one and only son. Sin will cost you something of worth. In order for God to forgive sin, something of worth to you must lose its life. It must be sacrificed in place of your life. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin is very costly. Sin is the central problem of the world. Ultimately, sin costed God his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Sin will make you pay more than you want to pay. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Ask the addict. See, with sin, you always reap what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. That's the nature of sin. You say, who talks about sin anymore? You're right, not many people. It's a word that's going out of style. But since it's still in the Bible, and since there's nothing else worth preaching, and therefore that's what we preach here, let me tell you what sin is. It's a word that means to miss the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. Anybody here ever throw darts? You ever throw darts on that tiny red dot target on a board? A dart board. How many times did you miss the marked target? If you're honest, you'll say most of the time, right? Some of you have never hit the target. You've walked up and maybe pushed the thing in there, but you've never thrown a dart and hit the target. Well... God's moral target for our lives is perfection. Anybody here ever had a, even one perfect day? <laughs> a day when you never had an immoral thought? A day when you never said something you later regretted? A day when you never did something that you should not have? How about a day when you should have done something but you didn't? When you think about all the ways that we can offend God and each other with our minds, our mouths, our attitudes, our actions, our inactions, only then do we realize how far from God we truly are and how desperately we need to have a right relationship with him. See, sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other. That's what sin does. When we are offended, we tend to retaliate and or what? Separate from the offender. When people commit 
offense, an offense, a grievous offense in our community, we separate them from the community. That's why we build jails and prisons. When somebody offends you, you tend to either retaliate or you separate from them. The same is true of God. In fact, it is true of us because it is true of God. This is one of the ways we know that we are made in his image. God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just. And so, so when he is offended by sin, his sense of justice calls for sin to be punished, and that punishment is eternal separation from him. And so the wrath of God is justly poured out against the sin and the sinner to reconcile the brokenness that is caused by sin. But because God loves the sinner, he made a way for the sinner to be saved from his wrath, and at the same time, his sense of justice and wrath is satisfied when an innocent substitute whose life is required instead of the sinner dies. Now listen to these precious words from the New Testament book of Titus. Starting in verse 4, Titus chapter 3, starting verse 4, we're going to read through to verse 6. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says this. But when the kindness of God, sorry, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of the rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Do you know anybody who loves you like that? God's kindness and love motivated him to save us. He was not motivated by anything that we did that pleased him, no? In fact, just the opposite is true. He saved us not because of our own righteousness, we had none. He saved us out of the abundance of his own mercy. Now watch this, watch this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. What in the world does that mean? See, why did we need to be washed? That's the question we should be asking ourselves when you read a passage like that in the Scripture. Why did we need to be washed? Because we was dirty. To put it plain, tore up from the floor up, dirty. That's how my sister Glenda would say it. Right, Sister Glenda? We were just tore up from the floor up. That's how messed up and dirty we were. And so God says he needed to wash us by rebirth. We were so messed up, God had to start over, giving us new life from inside out. And that's where the phrase born again came from in the 1970s. People used to say, I'm a born again Christian. Anybody ever heard that before? It's been a while, but that people used to say that. I'm a born again Christian. It comes from texts like this in the Bible. And then it says we were renewed by the Holy Spirit. The washing of rebirth and renewal 
by the Holy Spirit. In order for us to be saved, God had to wash and renew us because no amount of religious good deeds would do. It is not religiosity that saves us. Imagine if I, we're gonna, as a matter of fact, we're going to have some of our, all of our new members are invited to our house this afternoon. Imagine if I invited you to my house and I knew that you liked omelets and I am a great omelet maker and I decided to make some omelets for you. And so you come into my house, I hang up your coat and we're sitting at, you're sitting at my kitchen counter and watching me prepare the omelets and I get out uh, a bunch of eggs and I crack one egg and it's good and I crack another egg and it's good and I crack the third one and it's fantastic and I crack the fourth and the fifth but when I put the sixth egg in suddenly you smell something like sulfur which is not a good sign and you're like what's that? I said don't worry about it and I start mixing up because I'm thinking we got five good eggs in here. It's only one rotten egg. The ratio of five to one is all good, right? Am I right? No? You mean to tell me the one rotten egg is going to ruin the, my five good ones? And you're not going to eat that omelet? Y'all are something else. But isn't that how we approach God? We say, God, I've, I know I've done some bad stuff, but I've done some good stuff over here. And so many people are hoping that their good works are going to outweigh their bad works, and we can serve our life up to God for him to accept that. And you won't even accept one rotten egg when I got five good ones in the bowl. What we have to understand is that our sin taints our whole life just like that one rotten egg taints the whole bowl of eggs. No matter how many good eggs you put in there. You can put a whole dozen good eggs in there. That one rotten egg is going to spoil the whole batch. In the same way, one sin in your life will ruin your soul. And we all know we have more than one sin in our lives. The Bible says that our good deeds are like filthy rags. And you don't really want to know what ancient filthy rags were used for. You don't want to know. But I feel compelled to tell you so that you can understand how nauseating it is to God when we think that we can earn his good graces by our good works. Filthy rags in the ancient world was like toilet paper and feminine napkins. And God says when you have the attitude that you're going to do some good things to outweigh your bad things in your life, even your good things to me, are like toilet paper and feminine napkins. Yeah, I know that was kind of awkward, but awkward to mention those things in church, but it's in the Bible. God keeps it real in the Bible. Verse 6, notice the agency of our salvation. God gave us a generous outpouring of his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, the Savior, And that enabled us to become children of God. And as children of God, we have an eternal inheritance, which is in heaven, and all that heaven entails. And we have an eternal relationship with God. In order to be a child of God, we have to have uh, that rebirth, 
the washing of rebirth and the renewing of our soul to be saved. And the Holy Spirit does that through Jesus Christ. I don't know how it all works, but that's what the scriptures teach. And as children of God, we have this eternal inheritance, this eternal relationship with God and everything that that entails. And the best part is, in my opinion, the eternal relationship with God. Yeah, we're going to have streets uh, streets of gold. That's all good. And we're going to get to live forever. That's wonderful. And uh, it's going to be splendor, magnificent glory. But to have a personal relationship with God. So we are washed and renewed by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And then the agency of the Holy Spirit is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that's why John, the beloved disciple, wrote this in his gospel account. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13 says this. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. There it is again, born, that phrase, born of God. Now notice what the Bible instructs us to do in order to activate our relationship with God. Verse 12 says, do you see it? Verse 12, it says, believe and receive. Receive and believe. It's so simple. And yet, it's so powerful and so profound. The word believe is the word from which we get the words faith and trust. It's the word in the Greek, pistio or pistevo in the Greek, which means faith or trust. The problem is most people don't understand saving faith. Because the word believe in our modern English usage of the word, can be understood in three different ways. But only one of them is true saving faith. For example, the first kind of faith that does not save us is called intellectual faith. Intellectual faith or belief is simply believing a set of facts. For example, if I said to you, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? and that Barack Obama was the first African-American president of the United States, what would you say? Yes, I believe that. But so what? Believing those two historical facts doesn't really change anything about my life or my citizenship in this country, right? So just believing that Jesus Christ is a historical figure is not saving faith. In matter of fact, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, James writes, you believe there is only one God? Good. Well, even the demons believe that, and they tremble. In other words, James is saying that intellectual belief in certain facts about God or Jesus Christ is not saving faith because the demons believe like that, and they are certainly not saved. The second kind of faith or belief that does not save is called temporal faith. Temporal faith. How many of you say a prayer before you step on an airplane and they close the door? I mean, you're not in control. You're not behind the steering wheel. But you're going to have to have some faith that that pilot is not drunk, that he went to a good school, 
He's certified, and he knows what he's doing up there. Matter of fact, they closed that door. You can't even see the pilot. They closed the door. He's locked in there. You don't know his name. You don't know where he went to school. You didn't get a chance to interview him. And he gets on the microphone. He says, buckle up. And you cross up. Right? And you say, Lord Jesus, bless that pilot. And all the mechanics that worked on the plane. Making sure it has enough fuel. And you say a little prayer, don't you? Absolutely. When you get on a highway for a long journey, my dad would always pray with us in the car before we got on the highway and went on vacations to New York or wherever we were going. How many of you cry out to God in faith when you or a loved one is diagnosed with a serious sickness or disease? You pray and trust God, right? Just like the Balogun family did. How many of you call on God, believing him to supply all your financial needs when the money is tight, when that money is funny? Anybody ever have one of those months when the money is funny? And you have more months left over after the money is gone. We have months like that sometimes. The one fatal flaw of this kind of faith and prayer is that it is temporal in nature. Each scenario that I just shared with you, you're believing or trusting God to meet a temporary need from point A to point B, transportation, safety. From sickness to health, that's a point in time, temporal need. A financial need, after the financial need is met, you may not think about praying that prayer again until the next need you have. Those are temporal needs that require temporal faith. It's a very different faith than saving faith. Saving faith is trusting God to save your soul. Our soul is that part of our being that is designed by God to live forever, not in this life, but in the life after death. And that life is eternal, either in heaven or in heaven with the angels and all the saints, or in hell with Satan and all the demons and those who rejected God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so saving faith is believing who Christ is and what he did for us. And this is a good place to rehearse our memory verse. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The first part of James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will do what? Draw near to you. And we draw near to God by exercising our faith in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is talking about your heart's door. And that is the door of your soul. And did you notice how much of a gentleman Christ is? He doesn't just barge in to your life. He stands outside patiently knocking and waiting for you to open the door and to invite him into your life. And that's what it means to believe and to receive. 
How long has Christ been knocking at the, your heart's door? How long will you keep him waiting? Won't you let him in today? If you are not sure that when you die you're going to heaven, if you're not sure that you have a right relationship with God, if, if you are feeling distant from God or you're feeling like God is distant from you, today may be your day. And if you listen closely, you might hear the knock on your heart's door. That's Christ. He's been patiently knocking at your door. And he wants to come in to have fellowship with you, to establish a relationship with you. But he's a gentleman. He will not force you to do anything against your will. That's why when people say, well, I don't believe in a God that will send people to hell, they don't understand. God does not force anybody into heaven. He gives us all a choice. And he will not take anybody to heaven who doesn't want to be there. Therefore, if you reject his offer for salvation, your destiny is hell. It's not that God sent you there. You sent yourself there by rejecting the offer that's made for your salvation because the wrath of God is still on you because you have unforgiven sin. And God has canceled out your sin, but you have to reach out and receive that gift of salvation. You have to reach out and receive that by faith. The offer is theirs and it's yours for the taking. And so, may God help us to recognize that the way to receive, the way to have a relationship with God, it begins with faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins in, in recognizing we are sinners in need of a savior. We cannot save ourselves. And God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus, and that we believe by faith and receive it for ourselves. Let's stand as we pray.